Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Kenneth J. Barnes. He holds the Mockler Phillips Chair in Workplace Theology and Business Ethics at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. An ordained minister, he has also conducted business on six continents as a senior international executive. His new book is Redeeming Capitalism. For good or ill, the capitalism we have is the capitalism we have chosen, he says. Capitalism works, and the challenge before us is not to change its structure, he argues, but to address the moral vacuum at the core of its current practice. In Redeeming Capitalism, Barnes explores the history and workings of this sometimes brutal economic system, arguing that there is a possibility for a more just and flourishing capitalism for the good of all. It's a really great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Ken Barnes. Ken, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. You've written this uh, great book with a very aspirational and hopeful title, Redeeming Capitalism. I mean, this is sort of, there's nothing timely about this book. I mean, I'm sure that people say, hey, I mean, come on. I mean, what needs redeeming here? (laughs) Yeah, well, if people think that, they're not paying attention. You know, it's it's an interesting book, and I think that you you it's interesting because you talk about in the introduction sort of the cardinal virtues, you know, some basic Aquinas things like courage, prudence, and also the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love. And you're hoping that, and you kind of bookend the book with how these things could shape, uh, you know, our current economic system. And then it's interesting you go this foray into the history of capitalism, have these great treatments of of Smith and Marx and Weber. I, I'm interested when you first began kind of thinking about these issues and, and engaging thinkers like that. Like what was what, what, what was the story and how these because you give really judicious treatments to them. And I I'd commend the book to anybody just for that. I mean, you do really great treatments of major thinkers that are quite fair and give people a, a, a nice picture of how our current system developed. Well, thank you. I appreciate that uh, that comment. You have to understand that I'm not a career academic. Uh, I am an academic and hold all the degrees you can imagine. Uh, But I spent most of my life working in the business world, in the corporate world. I ran uh, some very large businesses uh, on six continents, working uh, in a variety of environments. And so so I'm assuming the one you didn't run one on was like Antarctica, right? It wasn't like Europe or <laughs> South America, right? Yeah, it was, it was Antarctica, I'm guessing. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't figure out what to sell the penguins of Antarctica. <laughs> but uh, someday I'll figure it out. But the, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is I saw the good, the bad, and the ugly of global capitalism from the inside. And, and I believe very strongly that uh, capitalism is by far – uh, the most efficient way to create wealth and to take people out of poverty and uh, I- encourage human flourishing in every imaginable material sense. But just before the financial crisis, I started to ask hard questions about what really was the underlying ethic uh, behind capitalism. And so when the financial crisis hit, I wasn't particularly surprised because I knew 
something was amiss. But when I went searching for capitalism soul, I found that it didn't have one. And so that put me on this journey uh, to really understand uh, historic capitalist and other economic epics and and what was happening during those periods uh, so that I could get a better understanding of what was driving uh, all economic systems for the past however many years you want to go back. I mean, I go all the way back to to biblical times, in fact. And what I found was that today we have a system which is actually devoid of a moral compass and resistant, if not impervious, to ethical constraint. And that's why we've got the problems we've got. And the penny really dropped when I realized that capitalism is actually a subject, not an object. It doesn't possess uh, what we theologians call hypostasis. Uh, it has no will behind it. It doesn't have any central agency behind it. Yeah, there's no mailing address, right? You've there's no it. institute. There's no kind of, this is all of us participating in a dynamic system. That's right. You can't even say when it started. You can you can give a general idea and say that the confluence of uh, fractional banking and the industrial revolution came together uh, and created capitalism by osmosis, And that's a reasonable assessment. But you really can't say this was the defining moment. So if that's true, that means it's going to reflect whatever the uh, social mores, the values, the ethics of the cultures in which it operates. And in our case, that's postmodernism and really a kind of post-Christian moral relativism and what my good friend Paul Fetus at Oxford calls a hermeneutic of suspicion. And that's why we have lost faith uh, in the system, because people have tested it and found it to be wanting. Yeah, it's interesting you say hermeneutic of suspicion. I always say to people, you know, you think about like in the 50s, somebody might say, well, this study proved, right? Oh, okay, the study. Now the first question, if somebody says, well, this study, well, who, who funded the study? Uh-huh. Right? That's, that's, our right. Fir- that's our first question, right? We, we're, we assume that there's sort of self-interest and power plays behind every element of society, which, which as you're saying, makes it hard to have trust in, in basic institutions. That's exactly right. And really, you hit the nail right on the head in terms of the, if there is one prevalent ethic, it's ethical egoism, a kind of Ayn Rand kind of approach to the world, which I find incredibly unhelpful and certainly contrary to, to Christian theology and Christian thinking. But I'll tell you, Ayn Rand has shaped Paul Ryan more than his Bible. That's certain, <laughs> and a lot of a lot of contemporary so. conservatives. Uh, yeah, I would say tragically so. Uh, I, I think most people don't realize uh, what Ayn Rand has done by taking uh, a perfectly reasonable concept of self-love and morphing it into selfishness that is endemic. The notion that if someone only looks after their own personal immediate interests that somehow the cumulative effect will be virtuous is simply madness. Uh, And that's why I unpack Adam Smith, by the way, because Adam Smith is taking out of context all the time, completely misunderstood, misquoted. So I remind people that economics wasn't always an Uh, a sort of uh, modeling science, Uh, it was actually a moral science. And Adam Smith is the perfect example. Yeah, I'd like to talk in a minute about your treatment of Smith because I find it fascinating. But I was thinking what you were saying about this moral problem. I mean, I I feel like if somebody read the er the early portion of your book and watched like the big short, they'd have a pretty good understanding (laughs) of, of some stuff which is mysterious to most people. But you talk about how how there are shell games played with numbers and things, you know, certain assets uh, valued and devalued in, let's just say, creative ways. 
uh, <laughs> that that weren't illegal. You know that that nobody went to jail. Like like Richard Fold, uh, who Bill Maher has a tremendous amount of fun with his name, as you can imagine. But Richard Fold, yeah, he had to pay some money back, right? But nobody. Nobody went to jail for any of the de- de- defrauding that happened, and 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 you know this stuff was not illegal that 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 happened and, and destroyed you know a big part of a lot of people's lives in the global financial crisis. Well, that's exactly right, and uh, people don't really take the time to understand uh, even the basics of economics. And I think the reason why Publishers Weekly probably gave this book a starred review. Uh, is because it's accessible. It, it takes fairly complex ideas, both economic and theological, and makes them easy for someone who's not trained in either area to understand them. And that's what I hope people buy the book for, if for no other reason. Then they come away and say, oh, I didn't understand that that's what's required for uh, capitalism to work. And I didn't understand why um, we need this moral compass undergirding it. So that's, that's, that's really the aim of the book. It's funny, Jonathan Haidt, who has written this fantastic book, The Righteous Mind, he does moral psychology. I heard him on Krista Tippett's show on being, he said, you know, I was willfully ignorant of capitalism. I started with a teaching company course and began researching it. And he said, I think uh, we should cut some advanced mathematics, which most people can do on computers in our high school curriculum and add some basic psychology and economics courses so people can understand the market they, that they're going into. It's absolutely shocking to me um, how little kids are taught in school about money and finance. And yet when they leave school, it occupies most of their life. Uh, And they don't understand the relationship between economics and morality. And as I remind everyone, every economic decision you or I or anyone else has ever made has been a moral choice. And so the cumulative effect of that is going to affect not only what kind of economic system we have, but what kind of culture we're going to have. It's interesting. David Brooks, in the in the introduction, his wonderful book, the, the the Social Animal, says that you know science seldom creates new philosophies, but it often dethrones or enthrones old ones. And he said, you know, the best class he ever took as an undergrad, I think at Princeton, was the British and French Enlightenment. And he said, what everything about neuroscience, depth psychology, social sciences has has proven is that the British Enlightenment thinkers were right and the French Enlightenment thinkers were by and large wrong. <laughs> that you can't <laughs> that you can't build rebuild human nature from the ground up. That things like tradition, sentiment, uh, you know, moral psychology, these they are really worth studying. You, you have this great section of Adam Smith who is in that tradition, right? Who is first and foremost, a lot of people don't know. I know I want to be careful that that because when our president says most people don't know it's usually something everyone knows. Like, most people don't know Lincoln was a Republican. Well, everybody knows that, actually. But, yeah, it's fascinating that when Trump knows, like, well, nobody must know this. But, you know, but uh, there are, like, there's the Adam Smith of mythology and, 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 you know, the real Adam Smith, who you do a great job summarizing. And you talk about how he is, above all, a moral philosopher, was a, a friend of people like David Hume, ha- had things in common with Hume, the great empiricist, things he differed with, and really was a, was a, a keen student of Hume human nature. And that's where a, a book like The Wealth... I mean, he, at first he writes this treatise on morality and subsequently writes uh, The Wealth of Nations. And so much of, of, of The Wealth of Nations is based on his own conviction and, and being an astute, would you say, observer of the human condition. Well, yes. In fact, I would say that you can't possibly understand Wealth of Nations without understanding uh, theory of moral sentiments first, because everything he says about human nature is predicated on what he says about human nature in the first treatise. And the other thing I would say about Adam Smith is 
uh, many people, because of his association with people like Hume, uh, assumed he was some kind of atheist or uh, at best deist. In fact, that's not true. Uh, his contemporary biographers all say that he was a theist. He thought of himself as a Christian in, in much the same way uh, most people of his generation thought of themselves as Christians. They questioned a lot of the metaphysics that we read about in the Bible, but that was common in their day. But he never questioned uh, the existence of God at all. Uh, and he never questioned the fact that human beings created in the image of God actually have uh, an endemic impulse to emulate the ethics, the goodness uh, of God. And, and so he predicates everything on that. And so when he talks about, uh, and, you know, one of the most famous quotes that's taken out of context is that it's not from the benevolence of the book, butcher and the baker and the brewer that we get our dinner, but on their self-interest. He predicates that on the notion that, however, the primary purpose of economic activity is the common good. It's human flourishing. Just because someone doesn't consciously think about the ultimate effect of their daily jobs on the common good doesn't mean that they don't enter into that practice for both the purpose of personal well-being and the common good. The two are not mutually exclusive. According to Adam Smith, they are two sides of the same coin. They're built on the double love command. Yeah, and yeah, you this sense of which, and, and he thinks, right, you point out that things like sympathy and compassion, he thinks are sort of seeds of divinity, you know, that, that we have these kind of echoes of, of the creator. And, 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 you know, so this for him, unlike with Hume, I mean, it pairs up, like you're saying, there's this twin, there's two sides of the coin that sort of the altruism and the self-interest. And, and I think you kind of point out too, that, that a really developed self-interest too, even developed self-interest will be about the common good, right? Because you realize your flourishing is not possible without the the infrastructure and superstructure that allows for everyone else to flourish, right? So even just on self-interest, it wouldn't be a sort of naked egoism that, that any kind of enlightened self-interest would also delight in the common good. Absolutely. And the other thing you were talking earlier about how, uh, you know, Brooks talks about how neuroscience and the other sciences, you know, will either help to affirm or not previous uh, notions about uh, morality and theology and philosophy I have a little section in the book where I actually talk about the fact that uh, science has confirmed everything that uh, Aquinas said about virtue, that virtue breeds more virtue, uh, and that to be a virtuous person requires doing virtuous things, but the practice of virtuous things makes you a more virtuous person by desire. You want to. And and so science has uh, talked about the... the uh, the uh, production of oxytocin uh, in our bodies, which is triggered by feelings of euphoria for doing good for others. And it's really a fascinating little section in the book. And I don't spend a lot of time on it, but it's just, it, to me, it's a fascinating uh, affirmation of what Brooks is saying that, you know, we, we are wired, hardwired to want to do good. But from a theological standpoint, we also suffer the effects of the fall. So we all know we have sinful human natures, the whole purpose of redemption is to overcome that sin and to get closer to the original intent of God. And that includes in the spheres of economics and really what's properly called political economy. You know, it's so interesting to me, some of the things you point out about Smith, you know, that, that, that if he were in a presidential debate today, he would be, he'd get pox 
from uh, uh, many houses, right? Like you talk about how he's he's you know he believes in kind of the importance of of high wage of of sustainable wages, right? He he thinks that you know these things are incredibly important. That he is he thinks there's problems with excess profits. That that, that things kind of get the system loses some of its dynamism, right? And it kind of gets bottlenecked at the top, which is some of the stuff, you know, we're seem to be suffering from now that he's that, that the real Smith, the Smith of history, the Smith is a lot more complicated and nuanced on a lot of the kind of contemporary struggles with capitalism we have today than many people make room for. Right. Exactly. Right. And, and I have a, a lot of friends who I uh, suspect on the political right, friends of mine who will read about things like what we currently call the living wage and go, wow, I didn't know Smith thought that. We have to keep that from the kids. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but here was Smith's logic. Smith's logic, which, by the way, was also used on the floor of parliament a generation later to argue against the economics of slavery. His, his logic was very simple. If everyone participates in a free market economy to a level that is slightly better than their own subsistence, everyone in that economy will flourish and do better. But if you hoard wealth, if you concentrate wealth, and if you treat human labor as any other commodity, you are dehumanizing people and hurting your own future prospects. Yeah, people fact, won't have people won't have skin in the game, right? If you if you if you, if you, do, if you don't get let them advance, if you don't have a real dynamism and an opportunity for their own prosperity, people just it's it's uh, and again in the words of our pre- president, the system is rigged. I mean, people <laughs> people will come up with the sense that the system's rigged, and they're not going to be diligent and productive workers. Well, unfortunately, the system is rigged right now, <laughs> uh, and, and and the last. The last uh, tax cut that was uh, uh, passed by uh, our uh, legislature and signed by the president uh, exacerbated the problem. Uh, I, I write a little bit in the book about that legislation. It was before it was passed, but it was out there on the table. And uh, my prediction in the book came true, and that is that it was going to further exacerbate the gap between rich and poor. It was going to help the rich much more than the poor. Uh, and the probability is it was going to blow up the deficit. So, you know, when people talk about, and by the way, you know, I'm not against tax cuts. There's a time and a place for them. But when people talk about the economic growth we're currently seeing and they say, isn't it great? It's caused by the tax cuts. The fact of the matter is uh, we are going to add about $500 billion in 2018 to our gross domestic product, largely because of the tax cuts, because we injected more liquidity into the markets by taking the money out of taxation and keeping it in the economy. Unfortunately, at the same time, we're going to add a trillion dollars to our national debt. That would be like the CEO of a company telling the shareholders, uh, oh, I don't know, I added 500 million to the P&L account, but I took a billion off the balance sheet to do it. That's bad economics. Yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting because you you talk about in the book how traditional kind of economic theory would say, okay, you what you want to do in you know if we have if if there is real economic struggle, if if we're really deep in recession, is drop taxes and run some deficits to to jumpstart the economy to to, to prime the pump, so to speak, and then when things are booming you, you want to raise taxes you want to uh, you know get the deficit under control you want to raise interest rates that you, you know you, you want to keep 
you know, things in proportion, right? And and sort of Reagan primed the pump, but then we just kept priming it, right? <laughs> and, yes and no. Yes and no. I, I talk in the book about the fact that actually uh, uh, George um, H.W. Bush uh, did the right thing. Right, he in raising taxes, right, yeah, not, yeah. He did the right thing. It cost him the presidency, but he did the right thing. And the Clinton administration benefited greatly from it. And it was, you know, the 1990s, we were seeing surpluses. That's un- it's unfathomable right now. That's yeah. unfathomable that, yes. we would get a, that we would get a budget surplus. Yeah, it, we, we can't even imagine it, can we? But, but here's the problem. Uh, the problem is that you can't continue to feed a system that everyone knows is unsustainable. It, it's just unsustainable. When we went off the gold standard in 1971, the famous Nixon shock, um, everybody presumed that the government would not be irresponsible in the way it handled the public purse by going completely to a fiat monetary system. And for most of the last 47 years, we've been relatively prudent. But in the last 15 to 20 years, we have been profligate, absolutely profligate. So if you just look at the period from 2008 to 2016, we added some growth to the tune of about $4 trillion. But we added $10 trillion in debt and another $4 trillion in quantitative easing. Again, we, re- we, we, we uh, emaciated our balance sheet in order to create the illusion of growth. What I will say, however, at least during the Obama administration, when things started to improve economically, because remember, he inherited a $1.4 trillion deficit and double-digit unemployment and uh, a negative growth, etc. At least when we started to see growth, he started to pay down the deficit. The deficit reduced by a trillion dollars under Obama. So for the president to come in now last November and to say we need to prime the pump and put more liquidity into the market when we weren't in a recession, in my opinion, was economic madness. Yeah, it's sort of like heating the house by throwing gasoline in the fireplace, right? <laughs> and, right and now he's pointing the finger at the Fed and saying, oh, if, if, the, uh, if the recovery goes away, blame the Fed. Well, the Fed is doing their job. The Fed has to raise interest rates. Otherwise, the thing overheats and we end up with hyperinflation. So if you're a little guy, if you're a regular wage earning person, uh, what you're seeing is a little bit of wage growth and most of the benefit of the economic growth going to the richest people. And if you're like the average American, if you have an adjustable rate mortgage or you're carrying a lot of credit card debt, the inflation which this has triggered and the increase in interest rates that we have triggered has already wiped out any wage growth you got. So what's ironic about this is it's his own base that is being hurt the most by these tax cuts. It's absolutely ironic. It's interesting. I was listening to Steve Schmidt, the for- former Republican now, but uh, political consultant, has this podcast. And he was saying that, you know, in the previous campaigns, they exaggerated the rhetoric when really on a horizontal metaphor, they were fighting the Republicans, and Democrats in these campaigns between the 45 and 45 yard line. Like they were duking out over 39.5 percent or 35 percent, ta- you know, marginal tax rate and looking at the ones uh, sort of right wing responsibility and the others left wing socialism. He said, now with the inequality, we've gone from a horizontal football field metaphor to a vertical. It's who's at the top and who's at the bottom. And, you know, you see whether it's right wing or left wing populism, this sort of haves versus the have nots, which brings up kind of you have this great chapter on the first sort of vertical uh, thinker, Marx, 
who you, you have a really nice treatment of Marx. You're like, look, you know, he may have misunderstood the nature of wealth creation and the dynamism, which is, you point out, was one of Smith's great insights, right? This different idea of wealth. Wealth isn't just how much money you have in the coffers and the mercantile system. It's dynamic. It's this, it's this what we need above subsistence, and which creates a new understanding of capital and all these things. And Marx goes back to a sort of less dynamic view, but does see the underside of inequality, right? And, and, and for, for whatever one thinks of his final analysis of things and prescriptions, you point out that there is, there is the bad and the ugly that he's got his finger on the pulse of, right? That's exactly right. And, and thank you for saying that. I've had a lot of people tell me that they think I gave a very fair assessment of Marx. And at the end of the day, I reject Marxism. In fact, I reject uh, what you might call socialism as well. You know, socialism and Marxism aren't the same thing. And I'll get back to that in a second, if I may, because in the current political climate, they are convoluted for very cynical reasons. But um, I do talk about the fact that Marx understood uh, the inequalities and even the inefficiencies in the system and understood the human suffering, unfortunately, because he didn't understand economics and how economics work. And his definition of wealth was simply the accumulated value of all commodities and the ultimate commodity was gold, he created in his mind a closed economic system. So he treated wealth as though it were matter. It could neither be created nor destroyed. It simply needed to be distributed. In fact, that's wrong. Wealth is nothing more than that delta between the amount of labor and resources necessary for subsistence and everything else, which is why technology always creates wealth. So um, you know, I think, I think it's important for us to understand that even though Marx got the technicalities wrong he got the ethics right in many ways yeah and then you next you you treat in the sort of historical section you treat max weber and you talk about how weber he's sort of the ultimate anti-reductionist right if you if you if marx is a sort of reductive thinker everything is class struggle you know weber comes along and says no you get, there's so many dynamic forces at play and one of them which marx dismisses is religion that that he that you know Weber is looking around and thinking, why, you know, if you're sitting in the, you know, 15th century and you look at, say, you know, the Middle East, China and, and, and Western Europe, which are you going to bank on to be the, come the world sort of superpower? It probably isn't Western Europe. And yet they do because Western Europe does. And he went and he thinks, you know, there are some things about urbanization and banking, but there's also something uniquely religious, right? For most of world history, religion, philosophy either was neutral about accumulating wealth or kind of frowned upon it, right? Like, whereas Protestantism is the first, uh, you know, kind of a high Calvinist Protestant is the first kind of, he thinks, worldview religious system that actually says that it's, it's a good thing to, to, to be productive and make money. Exactly right. And, and this is where Weber's observations are brilliant. And what he notices is this um, Protestant desire to create a this-worldly asceticism. In traditional um, Catholic theology, there was an otherworldly asceticism. So this separation between the sacred and the secular was simply treated as a, as a brute fact. Yeah, if you're a normal person that just likes to have sex, food, drink, work work a good, honest day, you, you don't need to read. You come to the church, you do the mass. But if you're a real religious athlete, then you go to the monastery or something, right? And we figure out what to do with you. Exactly right. But of course, Calvin took the notion of our work is our worship very seriously. And so for what we would today probably call Kyperian Calvinists, uh, people who understood that um, redemption entails a cosmic element, and there is, to quote Kuiper, there is no square inch over all of creation 
over which Christ is sovereign, that he does not claim mine. So this 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 um, whole life discipleship concept. And Weber, what, Weber and Trelch were, Matt, his friend Ernst Trelch, right? they were great admirers and, and became friendly with Kuiper. I mean, they really thought a lot of Kuiper. Well, because Kuiper was, you know, basically giving the, the intellectual uh, stimulus behind what was happening on the ground level, the grassroots level uh, in Protestant countries, and especially in America, by the way. Because remember, in America, it was seen as vulgar to use wealth for personal pleasure or personal aggrandizement. Yet it was seen as a sign of devotion to God to use your resources to create wealth because you could use that wealth in a way that would allow humans to flourish. Uh, right, right. So you, you, have these, you have the people at the top who are either reinvesting their money or giving it away and endowing charities. I mean, this, this kind of asceticism, right? You're not, you, you want to show your elect by, by being productive, but you don't want to, sh- but you also want to show your elect by not, you know, sort of being this profligate kind of, you know, narcissist. And that's where the asceticism part of it comes in. And, and, and so the interesting thing is, though, and I point this out in the book, is that Max Weber did give a clarion warning when he said that within a generation or two, if the religious um, foundations upon which this thinking is built begins to erode or becomes so distant that it no longer has any uh, efficacy in the system, you could end up with a very ugly form of capitalism. And that's exactly what I call postmodern capitalism. Uh, we no longer have any sense of morality and ethics when it comes to economics. So now we have this very self-indulgent, uh, excessive, uh, profligate kind of uh, consumerism and economic system that just wants to create wealth for the purpose of creating wealth. Uh, and we don't even think about thrift or prudence or the effects on the environment or any of the things that we should be thinking about. It's interesting. You say that Weber misunderstands the theological essence of Calvinism and Reformed thinking, grossly overstating the impact of predestination as a psychological motive and providing a jaundiced view of Calvinism, uh, which, you know, you think maybe is more to do with his own childhood religion and sort of, you know, experiential reflection. I wonder, though, is, is, is that it? Is that actually a credit to him in the sense of, is he actually analyzing not Calvin's thought in something like the Institutes or his treatises, but actually what it looks like on the ground, right? There, there's, there's, there, there's one, you, you can learn about evangelicalism by reading John Stott or ask, asking theologians at Gordon-Conwell, or you can go to the 81% of the evangelicals, that so many of which are, you know, kind of uncritical Trump supporters and probably practice a kind of folk religion, right? Like, uh, th- that are nationalists. That, and which which would really tell you what was evangelicalism on the ground, right? I mean, maybe Weber is, is looking at how this stuff's really working on the ground. Well, I agree that he was accurate uh, in his observations about how it was being practiced in the ground, on the ground. And he was right in his understanding of this, this worldly aestheticism approach. But when he starts talking about the psychological motivation that is attached to predestination, that's where he goes wrong. Because to a, to a Calvinist, uh, there is no psychological pressure because a Calvinist just presumes they're saved. They believe that they are saved by grace uh, through faith. So that's not the motivation. So his presumption was that there was uh, this, this overburdening fear of not being saved that was driving them. And I'm saying he goes off the rails there 
uh, theologically and, and I think psychologically. However, that doesn't mean his observations aren't right. They're just right for the wrong reasons. Yeah, I wonder, um, I wonder though, it, you know, it's interesting because, you know, if you're a sort of anxious soul and, and, and you're getting your pastoral counseling from Luther, right? Luther doesn't tell you to look inside to the inner testimony of the Spirit or something. He tells you, look to the cross, look to the word of absolution. Calvin's like, no, you can know you'll persevere. Look in and look for the inner testimony of the Holy Spirit. But then Calvin writes in, in, the, in his commentary in like Hebrews, uh, well, sometimes God creates false faith in the reprobate, right? But it looks like true faith to them. It looks like true faith to the congregation. But but he kind of is like Lucy with the football, and he pulls it away. It's a, I, I, I don't know. I, some of Calvin's thoughts on assurance maybe they, I, maybe the ideal Calvinist has assurance. But it's it's funny that you say that because you know Ernst Trouch, Weber's friend, they actually lived together for a little while. But I think their wives couldn't get along. But you know Trouch said that we're much like yourself. He said where Weber got this wrong was it's not anxiety but confident. He said you know the Calvinist, the, if the Lutheran gets stuck on justification, the Calvinist once he knows he's justified goes on as an actor in the theater of God's glory. Um, it's not from anxiety, but gratitude. Yeah, that's true. And, and, and what you quoted uh, from Calvin in Hebrews, he's, he's guarding against antinomianism. He's, he's really not talking at all about the kind of things we're talking about. But I understand what you're saying. He, he kind of teases the notion that um, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You know, after you get through the historical stuff and you spend some great, you spend a lot of time working through biblical material, you, you, you say that there is a possibility if if we can get beyond the sort of what you see as a kind of uh, amoral postmodern sort of you know self-centered capitalism to uh, redeem capitalism so if somebody's going to say well how do we do it from the ground up or the top down you're going to say yes right <laughs> well i have a chapter entitled from the top down and a chapter entitled from the bottom up yeah yeah you say it's a holistic kind of thing right that's right and you know if we're if we're honest we have to recognize that most people don't have the luxury of having a lot of influence from the top down. 
but what we can do is change the narrative. That's the first thing we can do. And we can reject the ethical egoism that is so prevalent. We can reject the Friedman doctrine. Uh, we can reject the, uh, the notion that um, there's no such thing as, as uh, moral responsibility in the economic sphere, that all that matters is that we just make as much money as possible. We can reject that. We can start saying, wait a minute, uh, there's, there's really uh, nothing about that is true. So, so that's, that's how that starts from the top down, is that we change the narrative. The second thing, however, from the bottom up is that there are many things that we can do personally and individually to redeem things like work and money and markets. And, and that's what I talk about uh, in the book there. Uh, we, we need to recover work, for instance, as something more than uh, a disutility, which is the way classic economics views work. It's a disutility. And reclaim the notion that actually working is part of what it means to be created in the image of God, who is the worker par excellence. And we start bringing dignity back into our understanding of work instead of the commoditization of work. And, so and isn't, that's, isn't that's there a flip side, too? I mean, you talk about the danger of sort of work is just sort of a necessary evil. But also, it seems on the flip side, there are people that not, that rather than give work dignity, they deify work. Like, if you're not busy, you're, you're not virtuous. You know, that we make a virtue of not having any leisure time. We make a virtue of, of, of being workaholics, that that's viewed as... So, so there's this kind of flip side, right? Either work is just sort of tolerated or it's totalitized as opposed to sort of being seen as part of the picture of what it means to be truly human. Exactly. In fact, I speak specifically about workaholism, and I talk about how we need to be balanced into our lives. Um, one of the problems with the current environment in which we live is that people are spending a disproportionate amount of their time, their talents, and their treasures on the accumulation of stuff on the increase of material wealth, and they're avoiding their other elements of well-being. And the other elements of well-being, and all the research supports this, the other elements of well-being are ultimately much more valuable to the human being at the end. You know, I spent many years as a pastor, and um, I can tell you I never counseled anyone on their deathbed who said, I wish I had made more money. But an awful lot of people say, I wish I had done more for my community. I wish I had spent more time with my kids. I wish I had spent more time in devotion to God. All of these things that we should know are more important, and yet so much of our waking hours are just spent on material wealth. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's it's interesting that you talk a lot about uh, the history of this country in relationship to taxation and things like that. I wonder, you know, right now, right now, the top, the marginal tax rate is what thirty eight percent or thirty. It just it just went down to thirty four, thirty six point nine in the last uh, in the last go around. Yeah, you know, I mean, Eisenhower had it at eighty nine point one percent, right, or something like that, like in the fifties. Then Kennedy drops it to six, like in the to sixty something, right, like. And and we and you know no we get more productive we our our, G, our GDP to to debt ratio actually drops you know and then now we're leveraged like crazy as a country and all the tax cuts seem to go disproportionately to the top which seems to continue the economic inequality problem right and and if you're at the top with all that money you you, you can't consume it all right I mean you, it, it sort of bottlenecks back at the top I, it seems to me that that. The, 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 at least one party solution is let's double down on this, right? 
let's drop the te- it, like we basically it seems like the deficits and all these things and and the inequality have have come from running the low rates and sort of favoring you know setting up the game to favor the one percent. So it seems like the solution to this is doubling down. They're saying, which strikes me as crazy. Well, as you know, um, I unpacked Thomas Piketty's uh, book in my book, uh, and Thomas Piketty, um, I think, again, aired on high taxation. And he was because- he was a guy that the the that you talk about the the Occupy movement loved. He was shocked that his book actually was noticed. I mean, it was it right. was in relative obscurity until the Occupy movement kind of came about. So he's well, it became a bestseller, New York Times bestseller. You know, which is you know most books on economics that doesn't happen, especially one as dense as his book. But in that section where I where I unpack Piketty, I talk about you know this notions of fairness and balance in the tax system, which again our good friend Adam Smith talked about. Yeah, your quotes your quotes on Adam Smith on taxation are are fantastic. I mean, I mean, it 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 would do people well to know some some stuff about Smith. I mean, because he really it would be a fascinating injection into the contemporary debate. Yes, absolutely. So so here's the thing: when it comes to things like the top rate of taxation, there is a point at which if you overtax people. You create capital flight. And this is exactly what the French socialist government did in 2010 uh, after Piketty's book came out. Uh, they, you know, uh, uh, Monsieur Hollande, the, uh, the prime minister of France, instituted the 75% top tax rate, I think it was. And all of a sudden he woke up one day and there was huge capital flight because, you know, in, the, in a modern economy, people don't have to keep their money in one place. If you look, however, at a place like the UK, you know, I spent 23 years in the UK and it's interesting. They've, they've battled with this. They used to have a 95% top tax rate in the 1970s. Uh, that was the famous Beatles song, Taxman, you know, 19 for you and five for me. Um, and then, of course, Margaret Thatcher came and there was the Thatcher Revolution and they lowered taxes dramatically and, and did, in fact, spur uh, the economy. But they found out fairly quickly that they had to find an equilibrium. And, and what it appears to be, somewhere around 45%, appears to be about as high as you can go where people will accept it. It's the majority of their money they're able to keep. And you don't have capital flight. But in this country, the top tax rate is frankly irrelevant because there's no correlation between the nominal rates and what people actually pay. So as an American living abroad, I had to file taxes both in the U.S. and the U.K. The U.K. takes about five minutes to file your taxes because you don't have a million different Mm -hmm. loopholes. Even running businesses, you know, you could do your taxes very, very quickly, even as a business, because you just didn't have a lot of loopholes and you were taxed progressively based on how much money you made. In this country, the tax system is so convoluted and so complex that the nominal tax rates mean nothing because nobody really pays mm-hmm. it. And that, by the way, is what was so cynical about the arguments in favor of lowering the corporate tax rate in America. Corporate tax rate in the 20 is averaging about 22%. We have 35%. We got to knock it down. Yeah, but in those other countries, they actually pay the nominal rate. Right. That, 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 yeah, that's what drives me pay the nominal rate. That's what drives me crazy. So people say, like, okay, well, we got to drop the corporate tax rate. And then they say cut the loopholes. But if you, 
if the average if the if the average corporate tax rate functionally with the loopholes is something like sixteen or seventeen percent, and big corporations like GE they get money back, well then if you drop the rate to twenty two percent and cut the loopholes, haven't you raised corporate taxes? <laughs> I mean, like but this is where this is where they they dropped the rate right and they didn't take out the loopholes. <laughs> you got it. You got it. They didn't take out the loopholes. So all we did was give a massive tax break to the richest companies and the richest people. And let me tell you else what we've seen. You know, a lot of people are talking about the stock market, uh, what happened in the stock market in the fourth quarter uh, of last year. Companies were buying back their own shares. They were already flush with cash. There was too much cash in the system. Whenever you have too much cash chasing too few assets, that's when you get bubbles. And the other thing which I find particularly pernicious is that most of the executives who made those decisions to buy back stock also have stock options, which means they were giving themselves huge pay hikes without having to do anything to their nominal salaries. Because by buying back their own shares, they artificially inflate the price of the stock, their options go up, they exercise their options, and they make a lot of money. Look, I'm the, I'm the poacher-turned-gamekeeper. I was the guy who had to make decisions about whether or not we repatriate profits based on tax regimes. I exercised stock options. So I understand how these things work, and I'm telling you, the system is rigged very much toward the top. You talked about that vertical pole. Well, at the bottom of the pole, it's greased. And this is what people are, are sensing and that's why there's so much anger and cynicism. So what are they doing? They're lurching to the left. And as I say in the book, the title of this book is Redeeming Capitalism, Not Replacing Capitalism. Because if we don't redeem it, that impulse to lurch left is going to take over. And we're not going to like what replaces it. So let's say a presidential candidate comes to you and says, all right, Barnes, you're the Christian capitalist guy. You've got a business background. You have some morality in you and you know, a theological vision. Tell me what my economic plan should be when I run in 2020. What, what, what would your sort of bullet points of the plan be? Well, the first thing is that we've got to create a fairer, simpler tax system because so much of the problem starts with our tax system. I'm not talking about a flat tax. Still have to have a progressive tax that just makes sense. But it's got to be a system where, as Adam Smith said, it's fair and it's predictable and people understand exactly what they're paying in proportion to what they're earning. And we get away from this system where through all of the pass-throughs, through all of the the incentives through all you know all of the things that we talk about all the time, uh, we have a system that is now skewed. And, and one, the, the problem with, the problem with that too, right? With these past with all the special loopholes is once you get them on the books, they're tough to get off because there's always a lobby for it, right? Whether or not, I mean, for instance, Canada doesn't have a mortgage deduction, right? Now you could argue whether or not it's good, but let's say we thought it was bad to have a mortgage deduction. So many people take it that no politician's going to vote. You know, th th once these things, it, it's like once the social engineering gets in the tax code, you can't get it out. Well, you say that, although very cynically, in the last tax cut, so-called blue states had it taken out. <laughs> this is no. true. Okay, this is true, right? right. <laughs> and, and, and that was, that, you know, that didn't go unnoticed in places like Massachusetts, where I live. Uh, so uh, the first thing is we really do have to get our heads around this, this tax system. And then the second thing is we really do need to uh, be much more prudent in the way we're handling the national purse. And we can't keep flooding the system with artificial liquidity in order to create an illusion of growth when there's no real growth there. And then on a macro level, I really think uh, we need another Bretton Woods. 
we really do need uh, globally to understand how the international monetary systems are going to work. Because what we're seeing right now is a return to 1930s-style monetary and uh, tariff policies that are used as economic weapons. And that will turn out badly again. Uh, I haven't uh, seen what the stock market is doing today, but uh, I suspect the stock market uh, is not doing very well. No, it's down again considerably because of what's going on with Turkey. Again, we are engaging in a combination of tariff and monetary currency wars in order to strike advantage over someone who we want to put political pressure on. If, if World War II and what led up to it taught us anything is that's incredibly dangerous. So we, we need to stop this economic isolationism. It's, it's lunacy. Uh, and we need to start stepping back and saying, how do we create a global financial system that genuinely works for everybody? And stop this one-upmanship, this notion of we've got to have an advantage over the rest of the world. That's nonsense. There's nothing biblical about that. And frankly, in the long, there's nothing very good about that for our own situation because we just create enemies abroad. Ken, I don't know if you're going to get that call from any candidates, but it, but if you did, I think we'd all be better off for it. And, and thanks for writing this book, Redeeming Capitalism. It's a great book. I'd recommend it to anybody. Thanks for writing it, and thanks for talking with me about it. Well, it's been my pleasure. And, uh, you know, let's uh, let's talk in a few months. We'll see if uh, any of these other predictions have come true. <laughs> Will do. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. God bless. Bye. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Ken for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Redeeming Capitalism. It's a great read. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well. <laughs>